Welcome back to Who Do You Think You Are, a podcast about imposter syndrome out of the Emory University Department of Chemistry. I'm your host, Sam Horowitz. Last episode, we heard from Dr. Whitehead Labou, an Emory University psychologist who has 35 years of experience treating university students, many of whom struggle with imposter syndrome. Dr. Whitehead Labou shed valuable light on why and how symptoms of imposter syndrome manifest in students from all different kinds of backgrounds. What's more, she echoed the concerns I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast about imposter syndrome being something that most people suffer from in silence. And so this got me thinking. What is it about imposter syndrome that makes people clam up? The sad thing is, I'm guessing the answer is just plain old shame. Shame because you feel you don't measure up, or because you're the only one who doesn't get it, the only one who's making mistakes. But this just isn't true. In undergrad, I worked in an inorganic synthesis lab. And if you aren't a chemist and this means nothing to you, all you need to know for context is synthesis equals scary chemicals and delicate glassware. Add in a clumsy college sophomore to that equation and you get some pretty expensive mistakes. There was once when I was putting together an apparatus we'd just gotten repaired in the glass shop and I thought I was being so careful, but then I broke it in the exact same place it had just been repaired. I remember leaving lab that day thinking I should just pack it all in. Chemistry wasn't for me, science wasn't even for me. And I called my mom to tell her this, and later that night, as mothers do, she sent me a Facebook post she thought would lift my spirits. It was a page from Charles Darwin's journal where he'd said, I'm very poorly today and very stupid and I hate everybody and everything. One lives only to make blunders. And although it'd be trite to say that this quote single-handedly reversed my spirits, it's definitely something that stuck with me. If even Charles Darwin, father of modern biology, felt inadequate and stupid sometimes, maybe the fact that I do too doesn't mean the end of my scientific career. Experts often struggle just as much as novices. That level that we think we'll all magically reach someday, where we can finally say, now I know enough, I don't think that actually exists. In the hopes that this knowledge will bolster other early career scientists who struggle with self-doubt, I did something kind of crazy. I interviewed my boss, Dr. Katherine Davis of the Emory University Chemistry Department. Enjoy. I'm uh, Kate Davis, as you said. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Chemistry at Emory. Uh, Could you talk a little bit about the area of science that your lab is focused in? Absolutely. So... We're sort of a biophysical chemistry lab, and we focus on looking at metalloenzyme dynamics. So enzymes are the tiny little molecular machines that do all the reactions that facilitate life. And so some of these machines use metals, metal ions, to help them do more challenging or difficult reactions. They potentially make biologically active molecules that are important for antibiotics or anti-cancer drugs. They are really important for all the processes that occur in your body. And so what we try and do in the lab is either structurally visualize those or spectroscopically visualize various reactions. Great. But so I've asked you here today to talk about imposter syndrome because I've done a lot of research about a lot of the different causes and ways it manifests. So I think it's really important to be honest about it. I think it's the reason that it's so pervasive is because people don't like to talk about it and like to act like they've never experienced it. Um, so we can go ahead and get started. My first question is, have you ever wanted to leave science and why? 
Absolutely. I think everyone has the urge to quit their job at some time or another. Sometimes you just wake up and it's your mental state and you just don't want to do anything anymore. Sometimes there's something concrete. You, you know, your paper didn't get accepted. Your experiment didn't work. Normally within a few days though, something good happens. You wake up, you feel better. You stay because it's what you like to do. I guess more specifically, what keeps me hooked is probably that I like puzzles and I like people. And since I work in a team to solve scientific puzzles in my job, those kind of trump all the negative things and make it all worth it. I guess I should say that in terms of my current position, I've only just started. So I try really hard not to think about quitting just yet. <laughs> Chemistry Unbound isn't like a regular chemistry major. It's a cool chemistry major. Chemistry has been taught the same way for over a century. At Emory, our chemistry faculty put their heads together to completely redesign the chemistry curriculum, making it easier for students to understand key chemistry concepts and make connections to real-world problems and careers. Chemistry Unbound organizes six foundational courses around thematic concepts, integrating knowledge from multiple chemistry disciplines into each course instead of teaching discipline-based courses. After completing these foundational courses on topics like light and matter, structure and properties, and macromolecules, students can choose from a range of advanced topics courses to complete their chemistry major, courses like biochemistry, food chemistry, and medicinal chemistry. Chemistry Unbound also prepares students for chemistry research experiences in a wide range of laboratories. Chemistry Unbound. Visit our website at chemistry.emory.edu slash undergraduate to learn more about Chemistry Unbound. That's chemistry.emory.edu slash undergraduate. Yeah, that's that's probably a, a good mindset to take on. But I will say, like, as a first year graduate student, I think about quitting a lot, <laughs> which I think I think is normal um, talking to other graduate students, especially ones who've joined labs during a pandemic. The first little bit of a job or of any new position is especially difficult. And that might be when a lot of those thoughts pop up. But <laughs> but I try not to think about it, I guess. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So I guess you kind of answered this um, in your last question about, you know, puzzles and things like that. But what can you remember what made you want to become a scientist um, or a professor? <laughs> so, you know, that's an interesting question. A lot of people have asked me this. I don't actually remember this, but my mother says that from the time I was like seven, I wanted to be a professor. <laughs> and apparently if you asked me like, well, what do you want to be a professor of? I said, it didn't matter. Like, I don't know. I don't care. I just want to be a pr professor. And I assume looking back that this is because my father is a physics professor and my mother is a teacher. So who knows what went on in my, in my mind? Why science? That's probably a little easier. I always had a lot of sort of varied interests. Like I liked writing. I liked art. I liked anthropology. I liked math. And so when I went to university, I wanted to explore and I didn't really want to commit to anything straight away because I knew also that my personality was one. If I started something, I would want to just keep going and not quit. So at the time I was debating between a major in art or a major in like math and physics type stuff. And unfortunately, the school I went to, you couldn't take any art classes unless you committed to being an art major. And so I, I couldn't really explore that. So I explored the more sciencey courses and I liked those. And 
again, probably because of an interest in solving puzzles, I went that direction because it was what I could actually access without committing straight away. In terms of staying, I guess I've always just liked figuring out the answers to those puzzles and understanding how things work. So in a really big picture way, it's the same now as it was then. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And I've heard a lot, especially when I was going through a rotation period, you know, trying on different labs, seeing where I wanted to do my PhD. A lot of the professors I asked, what is the most important quality in a graduate student? And a lot of them said intellectual curiosity, which just sounds like that's kind of your driving motivation for, for what you do in science. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> so as you say that you have this driving motivation of, of solving problems and working with the team to solve puzzles and things like that, do you feel like within academia itself, I guess outside of just that intellectual curiosity, do you feel like you belong? I do, except when I don't, if that makes sense. <laughs> um, um, in general, I guess I learned to find my place by interacting with other people. So in particular, when you meet people who come from fancier schools or or were ahead of you in, in your studies, and so you feel like they knew everything and you don't know anything, or you maybe meet someone who has way more confidence than you, you know, that stressed me out and I felt like I maybe didn't belong. But over time, I guess I learned that they had strengths and weaknesses just like I did. And they had insecurities and they stumbled or they had a light bulb moment. And so do I. And so I try and think about that. And when I do that, I feel like I fit in because I'm like all the other people. It's true that I don't always feel like I belong, especially when I'm suffering from imposter syndrome, <laughs> but I can always reason with myself. And in the end, it's where I want to be. And therefore I belong. Yeah, that definitely makes sense. And I can really empathize with that feeling of when you see other people who you think are way better off than you or like way more confident than you, when you see them saying things like, oh yeah, I've doubted myself at this point. It's really reassuring. And it's part of why I asked you here today, actually. So <laughs> yeah, I appreciate that. But so as you say that, like you sometimes do feel imposter syndrome and that's when you feel like you, you don't belong in academia. How would you define your relationship with imposter syndrome? I guess it's sort of the root of all of my insecurities, <laughs> you know, worrying about being a good mentor, worrying about being a good researcher. Can I secure funding? Will anyone like the stuff that I'm doing or the paper that I might publish? The list goes on and on and on. And I think all of that, at least in some way, stems back to this sort of feeling of being an imposter. Like, am I good enough to be here? So I quiet that really annoying inner voice by calling people that I love who support me and I can try and you know talk to them about my fears or talk through my fears. It probably sounds weird, but it's a little reassuring, as you say, to see other people experiencing similar feelings. I don't want them to experience those feelings, but it's nice to know I'm not alone. And I guess, strangely enough, it also helps talking to my students like you. <laughs> when I'm having a down day, there's invariably somebody else in the lab who's having an up day who can make me feel better, even if they don't know I'm having a hard time. So what are the metrics that you use to measure success? So thinking really big picture, there's all sorts of categories for success in my life. Things like health and financial stability all the way through professional impact and personal relationships. 
I think about little things. So if I go to the dentist regularly, that's a success. If I paid my bills this month on time, that's a success. Even things like, did I see my closest friends in the past six months? I think that's a success. Did I make time for that? On the more professional side, obviously things like, did an experiment work? Did I publish a paper? Are, are like students interested in the lab? Are we getting the word out? I definitely struggle a little bit, like a lot of people with work-life balance. So I'm definitely actively trying to improve my success in that arena. You know, did I travel somewhere exciting recently or in COVID times, did I watch a documentary about traveling somewhere exciting? <laughs> they all seem pretty small individually, but at the root of it, if you add them all up, I guess those are my successes. It's really cool that you have found a way to kind of distribute how you measure success. Um, as I've done this research on imposter syndrome, one of the things I've found to be pretty conserved throughout people who struggle with it is putting all of your metrics in one basket. Like if, if I only feel successful when everything in my experiment went perfectly, I'm not going to be very happy like most of the time. No. <laughs> um, and, and actually someone in the lab, Stacy, actually told me, count all of your little successes. You made a gel and it didn't leak. Yay. Yeah. That was your success for the day. Or, you know, you yeah. had Chipotle for lunch. Woohoo. You know? Yeah. Um, I know people who at the end of the day, before they go to bed, they think like, what was one good thing that happened today? Like, what can I define and put into words? But it could be, as you say, as simple as I had Chipotle and it was really good. It could also be like, hey, my paper got published all the way from tiny to really big career wise. But it's just as important if you can think of one positive thing every day. Especially in a career like academia, where so much of that success, those big metrics for success are so delayed. When you say my paper got published, like that's, that can be years of work that went into that paper. So if you don't count all of the little successes and victories along the way, like you really are putting off that that's gratification. Really true. My PhD, my big PhD paper was not published until four years after I graduated. Wow. So it was like this huge ordeal of submitting and resubmitting and being, you know, having issues with the particular field we were in. And it was yeah, had I had I felt like that wasn't a success earlier on, I feel I probably would have felt really defeated. Yeah, definitely. Do you do you feel like your metrics for success have stayed constant throughout your life? Probably not. I mean, when I was younger, I guess I didn't really think about things in terms of success the way we're talking about it. Yeah, yeah. It was more just were my needs like my basic needs met and did I occasionally get to do something fun? And and I think that was definitely a success. And I'm grateful that that was all I had to really worry about. But yeah, I think now it's much more categorized than yeah. it was before. Yeah, that makes sense. I think a lot of people do experience that like increased categorization with successes. It's like personal, professional, you divide your life into boxes. I think it's something that we need to relearn from when we were younger, like you said, where we can count successes. I went outside and played basketball with my friends or whatever, like just yeah. like little things like that, like integrate that with the categorization that we have to have in our day-to-day -day life. We can't say that we have the best stock room of any chemistry department in the country, but, well, I think we have the best stock room. Why? Because our stock room is an independent stock room, working with multiple suppliers to fulfill the needs of our many research labs. From test tubes to solvents, lab notebooks to cleaning supplies, the stockroom has everything. And if they don't have it, they can help order it. Best of all, the stockroom is like chemistry's community center. 
Steve, our amazing stocker manager, offers coffee during the week and donuts on Fridays. That's right, a free donut just because Steve cares about us. That's it, I'm calling it. Best stock room in the country, in the world. So we talked a lot about how imposter syndrome manifests for you and, and how you cope with that. Kind of zooming out more broadly, can you think of any big name contributors to imposter syndrome in academia specifically? I think to me, and this is just my personal opinion from looking at my own life and looking out, there's probably one overwhelming contributing factor. I'm sure there are lots of other things, but whenever you walk into a group of people that appear to be different from you, whether that's race, sex, ethnicity, cultural identity, sexuality, educational background, socioeconomic level, the list goes on and on. And whatever it is, when you walk into that room, you feel like you don't belong. And so I think that if you just increase the diversity of people in the room, then that'll go a long way to minimizing that feeling. So most people will walk into the room and they'll meet themselves in a class or a lab. And if you meet yourself, you're more likely to feel like you belong and not have, even if you have those thoughts of, am I really good enough? You can point to other people who are like you and say, hey, they were able to do it. So surely if I work hard, I can do it too. Whereas if you go in there and you have no connection to anyone in that room, it's really hard to see yourself in that place. I really appreciate you saying that because I think a lot of people, especially, you know, senior scientists see diversity as something that's like an afterthought almost. Like it's it's not necessarily essential for research to, to go well and to feel successful as a scientist, but it really truly is for everybody, regardless of your race, ethnicity, gender, like you say. I, I see that we're coming up on the half hour here. So I just want to be respectful of your time. Was there anything that you feel like I left out or that you think still needs to be said? Um, about imposter syndrome specifically or your experience with it? Nothing super major. I think I just want to emphasize that everyone feels that even, you know, I've spoken to big name professors at big name schools and they have even said that, you know, there are times they're preparing for a talk they practice because they're worried that people are going to think, what am I up here for? And so you wouldn't believe the number of people who have the same feelings that you might have and feeling like maybe you don't belong or you're not good enough. And that's what I just always try and remember is that I'm not alone in this. Everyone feels that everyone has those insecurities. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much for your thoughts, especially that last one, I think really hit home for me. Um, and it's really what I'm trying to do with this podcast. Just get it out there that no matter how successful you think someone is, they've doubted themselves before. Um, so I really appreciate you saying that. And I appreciate your time. Uh, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for the invite. Who Do You Think You Are is a podcast from the Emory University Department of Chemistry. Today's episode was produced, edited, and recorded by Samantha Horwitz, with music that was written and performed by Samantha Horwitz and Dominic Cristiano. Special thanks to Communications and Outreach Manager Kira Walsh, 